25. Job 25. I want you to keep us lifted up in prayer. Tomorrow night we start the uh, Mount Air Camp Meeting in Alton, Kansas. So that'll be Wednesday through Friday night. And this will be for the Methodists and the Quakers. So we're kind of looking forward to preaching those meetings and having a good time with them. Now this this evening in uh, Job 25, I'll take the time to read all six verses, but verse number four is the main verse that we're going to look at as we work on this word justified. Job 25 verse one. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, Dominion and fear are with him. He maketh peace in his high places. Is there any number of his armies and upon whom doth not his light arise? How then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Behold, even to the moon and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm and the son of man, which is a worm. Okay, so we'll work on this word here and then we'll move on into the New Testament a little bit. But let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for another lovely day. Just beautiful weather. Enjoying this time. And we pray, Lord, as we move into the summer that this will be a fruitful time for a lot of people, but also let it be a time where people draw closer to you. Keep all of our young people safe. We pray that you preserve uh, their parents from various harms and danger. But now as we break the bread of life and look into the word of God, we are expectant that you're going to minister to all of our hearts. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So the word is justified, and let's, let's just think about this for a second. And, you know, if you read the book of Job, you know it's a very interesting book. I'm surprised they just have not made a lot of movies about this book. Just a lot of good stuff that's in here, because in the beginning, you know that Job was called a righteous man. He was a very wealthy man, certainly a blessed individual. And with all of his blessings, Satan targeted him. Satan is always looking for someone to attack. And of course, he went to God and accused Job before God and basically said to God, the only reason he's serving you is because of all the things you've given him. And if you take away some of these blessings, he'll turn around and he'll curse you to your face. And then this is when this whole little conversation occurred and then troubles came to Job from Satan. He lost family. He lost livestock, which is a lot of money and profit. He lost uh, his health. Of course, the Bible teaches that he had boils from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. So what, what that means is no matter what position Job was in, he couldn't find any rest. He couldn't find any peace. Boils on his side, boils on his backside. <clears throat> and with with all of the difficulties that took place, let's not forget, he never knew 
about the conversation between God and the devil. And he doesn't really seem to, to, to have any kind of indication of the, the source of all of his problems other than to say this. With all the things that he said, he never sinned with his lips. So the scripture is clear that Job didn't care what his particular uh, condition was. He's going to worship and praise God because when everything broke out, the Bible says he basically stripped down and just said, naked I came, naked I'm going to leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he worshiped. And a lot of people don't do that. They don't worship when they're in trouble. And they certainly don't worship when they're in pain. They murmur, they complain, we get upset. We, we, we look for people to listen to us and want people to sympathize with us and show us some pity. And in all of this that was taking place, let's not forget, Job had a wife that was not an encouragement. She was a discourager. And that would be a very, very difficult uh, kind of a person to have in your life when you're trying to believe God to bring you through difficulties. So then word, obviously, got all around the villages and into some other territories. And Job had some friends that came up with a great idea. They said, let's go to our good friend and let's be with him during his time of need. Now, in hindsight, when I look at this, if I was Job, I would have wished they had not have had that idea. But they did. They had that idea and they all made the long journey and they came and sat with him. And the scripture says they sat with him for days and never said anything. Sometimes those are the best kind of friends to have. The ones that don't talk. They don't say anything. Just sit there and grieve with you. You recognize their presence. You know that they're there. You feel good because they're there, because they love you. But when Job's friends started talking, that's when trouble came. And there were a number of conversations that were had. And each of the conversations, Job essentially was told, you know, you wouldn't be having all these problems if you if you're a righteous man. So basically, because you've got sin in your life, you're the one that opened up this whole chasm where the devil could come down this valley into your life and create all this havoc because you've done something wrong. Well, we already know he, that wasn't the case. He, he, he hadn't done anything wrong. But there was one person in particular that he had some conversations with by the name of Bildad. And Bildad is the one who's speaking here in Job chapter 25. And this whole issue of justification or how can a man be justified was a continual topic in this man's discussion. Because if you go back to Job chapter nine, in Job nine, verse one and two, Job is answering Bildad from his second discourse. And in Job nine, verse one and two, Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. So th this was a question in Job's time. How can a person be just with God? When Adam and Eve sinned, you'll recall that fear, shame, guilt, condemnation, all of that came into their life. When it did, they went into hiding. That is the natural response of people with sin in their life. They do not want to be in the presence of God. And I've said this on many occasions. You should never be surprised by people who have no desire to go to the house of God if the presence of God is there. Now, if it's a place where the presence of God is not, 
They won't care because they won't feel anything anyhow. But but if they go where Jesus is lifted up, where the words of the song magnify him, where the presence of God is real, then someone who is in sin, they're going to be anxious. They're going to be nervous. And this is what happened with Adam and Eve. So what did they do? They decided that in order to make it, you know, somewhat, uh, you know, favorable to them in the presence of God, they, 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 they tried to hide because they wanted to cover themselves because they knew they were naked. God goes out of his way. Of course, he takes animal skins, gives to them, covers up their nakedness, but then expels them from the garden. And then coming out of the garden, then we learn with their kids that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And the only reason people called upon the name of the Lord and offered sacrifices is because God obviously communicated to them that it's going to take a sacrifice, it's going to take blood in order for you to be justified in my sight to have a relationship with me again. And in, in order for you to come to me. So from that time until Christ, people have always looked for ways to justify themselves, to seem as though they had no sin. With Abraham, he's offering up sacrifices for himself, just like other people. You come to the time of uh, the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. And let's not forget, the Lord said, everybody take one lamb for a household. So whether you had a house of 11 people or a household of two, or if you were single, one lamb. And, and that lamb is 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 going to be used so that you can take the blood of that lamb after it's slaughtered and then you're going to put it on the doorpost. You're going to sprinkle it. You so you're going to put a little spot here, a little spot here on either side and this is going to be your entering, this is going to be your going out. You're coming in to the, through the blood, you're going out through the blood. The blood is going to be your security. The blood's going to be your safety. That animal had to die. That lamb had done nothing wrong, had not committed any sin, but that lamb had to die for each household. And the blood in that lamb was enough to secure for the people inside that home a relationship with God and safety and security. So you can see within that the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Corinthians says that Jesus became my Passover lamb. And I'm grateful for that. Now, now me, if, if I would have been part of the Israelites in that time and they said, and Moses would have said, look, there's an angel coming through this area and there's going to be a lot of people dead tomorrow morning. And the only way you're going to be safe is, is if you you put that blood on the doorpost and make sure it's visible. And when God sees the blood, he'll pass over. Now, I don't know if they use hyssop to put it up there, but I'm telling you, I would have found the biggest paintbrush ever. And I would have painted I would have painted the blood all over the doorpost, probably would have put it on the roof of the house if I could have. I would have wanted to make sure God knew I was safe and secure in that blood. And so these households were delivered because of that. When they finally got out into the wilderness, what did God do then? He gave them a tabernacle. He had them take up an offering amongst the Israelites, or excuse me, amongst the Egyptians. And when they got out into the wilderness, if the, if the Israelites thought that money and that wealth was going to remain theirs, they were sadly mistaken. God said, you're going to give it all back to me. We're going to build a tabernacle. They built one. In that tabernacle, God said, there's going to be a priesthood. 
The priesthood is going to offer up sacrifices. They're going to do this six days a week, two days, two times each day. And so now the priesthood has a ministry of offering lambs and other livestock for the nation. That means while the kids were out playing, the priests were in the tabernacle. When the elders were meeting, the priests were in the tabernacle. Blood was being shed. Animals were being slaughtered. Ministry was taken care of because they were specifically geared towards that. And that one tribe had to handle all of that. So while the children of Israel slept, you had ministry going on in the tabernacle. While they were awake, you had ministry going on in the tabernacle. That's why the scripture says of our high priest, he ever liveth to make intercession. Ever lives to make intercession. Okay, then. So this whole tabernacle thing continued for a long time and and for 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 hundreds of years, this this thing, you know, this all these sacrifices and stuff. And I have no idea how many animals lost their lives from the time of Cain and Abel right on up to the time Jesus Christ came. But I do know that when they established the temple and had one local fixed facility, Solomon and other kings were offering many more sacrifices than they did in the tabernacle. But one day all of this had to terminate. It was never God's plan to go through all of history offering sheep and goats and turtle doves and bullocks and meal offerings. And in the fullness of time, the scripture says that Jesus came and he became the lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. So you can you can see then how this thing gets bigger and bigger throughout Scripture. So going back to Cain and Abel's day, it was a lamb for a person. Thinking about Israel coming out of Egypt, it was a lamb for every house. With the establishment of the tabernacle, you had sacrifices for the nation. But then Jesus comes along and he becomes the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. It gets bigger and bigger. But but going back to Job 25 and looking at verse four, it says, how then can man be justified with God or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Job is asking this question without all of that background I just gave you. Because it wasn't even available to him. Now, he knew of the sacrifices because, remember, he himself offered up sacrifices for his own children. And he made the statement in chapter one and two. It could very well be that my children have sinned. So people have have always had the desire to be right with God, because if they knew there was a God, then that God had to have some kind of qualifications that were that had to be met in order to be in right standing with him. Well, look at people today that are Buddhists. There are people interested in karma and, you know, peace and, and doing things like that. Now, Buddhists don't necessarily believe there's a God, but they certainly believe there's a system available in this universe that people need to live by and adhere to in order for all of the good fortune of the universe and all the energies of the universe to function well on their behalf. Think of Hinduism. A lot of different laws. And people have continually sought to offer up <clears throat> sacrifices to these various gods. So you can go to India or you can go to parts of Bangladesh 
Or you can go to parts of Pakistan and, and you'll find these these temples and with these statues and figurines that are there, people will come from every direction and put sometimes down a little bowl of vegetables, rice as an offering to the gods. Why are they doing that? They want the gods to be happy with them. Well, in ancient times, what kind of religions did they have? Egyptians, Philistine religion and so many other ones. What do you think people do today in order to be right with God? What do people do today to have a conscience that makes them believe that God will find them acceptable? People who have sin in their life today go out of their way to deal with sin in a way oftentimes that's unbiblical. How can I skirt around God's principles and still be justified with him? And this is what what we have all the time. And you can see in society things that scripture says is not so good. Society says it's not so bad. So, you know, as well as I do, that when it comes to marriage, uh, we're supposed to enter into covenant with our spouse and remain faithful to our spouse. But at the same time, adultery, although condemned in the Bible, It's not so bad in society today. And there are plenty of people who live in relationships outside of wedlock who go to church every Sunday. Every Sunday. Yeah. And some serve in positions of power in a church. How can they do that? Because in their mind, they have come to believe that their actions are justified and they're still right with God. What did they come to believe? They've interpreted the character of God to mean that God is such a loving God. He could never be displeased with me in my sin. The conversations with Job's comforters, his with his friends, they were 180 degrees opposite. If you got trouble in your life, Job, it's your fault. And they kept asking him, when have you ever heard of God casting off a perfect person? When have you ever found that somebody who who didn't have iniquity in their life, that God wouldn't awaken and rise up and defend them? See, so we, we, we see then that you can go from one extreme to the other. And if if you had people in your life like Job's friends, then every time you had trouble, you know, the first thing you do, you'd say, oh, my goodness, there must be sand in my life. Goodness, one of the shingles fell off the house. Storm came and, you know, the the hell storm came. and, And now we've got little divots in our siding. Oh, my goodness, God must be displeased with me. Now, if you don't think that's the case, go back and read some of the writings of our colonial preachers from the 17th century. Read some of those preachers who were over in the New England states. And I'm telling you, if there was a tornado, if there was rain that came for too long and it flooded an area, everybody would say, we're calling for repentance. The whole nation is in trouble. There's sin everywhere. Well, when is there not sin on the planet? Okay, there's always sin in the planet. When is there not sin in our lives? I'm not perfect, but I'm saved. But even in my salvation, I'm perfectly saved, even though I have a law of sin at work in me. So if if I if in order to be justified with God, I have to feel like there's never sin in me. I'll never feel justified. Be impossible. And thank God our relationship with God is not based on emotion. Yeah. So let's go to the New Testament now and let's go to Romans chapter three and and let's work on this with some understanding 
that came post Job's career. Now, we know how Job's life ended up. Praise the Lord. He held steadfast. He maintained his integrity in the face of all his accusations, even if he might have inclined towards some self-righteousness. He still did not admit he did anything wrong because he felt like he didn't know if he did anything wrong. Even though every finger was coming at him from every direction. And in the end, the scripture said God blessed his latter end more so than in the beginning. You say, Pastor, that's still a difficult story because the kids he had later in life, they could never be a replacement for the ones that he lost in the beginning. I'm not saying they were. I'm just simply saying God blessed his latter end more than in his beginning. See, and and sometimes the loss of someone here, though that void and that pain is always going to be there. There still is a blessing that can bring comfort to help you move beyond the loss that you experienced back here. And that's what God did, did for, uh, for Job. And, and I assume in, in all of that, that there's a whole lot of forgiveness that went toward Job's wife because she wasn't exactly the best character in his life. But nevertheless, Job started having those children one more time. Don't, don't you like don't you like a story like that? So you got all these grown kids and they working with him in the farm, then loses them. And then he goes through this trouble for however long it was. Then it gets to the end. And then the Lord opens up Job's wife's womb when she was older and she started all over again. Might have been eight, might have been nine, might have been ten. Who knows? Well, let's look at Romans three, and I want to start with verse 19. Now, we know that what things soever the law saith, it says to them who are under the law. Now, that makes sense, because if you were a Jewish person and you adhered to Mosaic law, you needed to know what the law said. And if you knew what it said, you are required to obey it. Same thing with the laws of the United States of America, though they're not religious we, we understand that when you get out on the road, the law says you can go so fast. And, and that's not a suggestion. The, the law says you're not supposed to trespass in certain places. That's a law. Okay. But, but the laws of the United States of America apply to us and not to people in England. So these laws are bounded and they're restricted. Look at verse 19. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So even though the law of Moses were for the Jews, this law made it possible for every human being born on the planet to be found guilty before God because all of these laws were applicable. Now, now let's, let, let's, let's never forget this. The Ten Commandments. Although when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it says that he nailed the, the laws and ordinances to the cross with him. The, the, the very spirit of all the Ten Commandments are in the New Testament. Every one of them of the Ten Commandments are in the New Testament. Thou shalt have no other gods. Read the last verse of First John. It tells you little children have no idols. OK, so the, so the Bible says that you're not supposed to bear false witness. Don't lie. What does Paul say? Lie not one to another. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. The Bible says you're not supposed to murder. You're not supposed to kill. We know that. But then what did the New Testament say? It says if you hate your brother without a cause, you're a murderer. 
So the spirit of it is throughout the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they had to honor the Sabbath, not because of Moses law, but because of the creation law. But Moses fixed it as a principle and as a day that had to be honored. But the scripture says in Hebrews, there remaineth a rest for us. But our Sabbath is in Christ. He's our rest, you see. So we're not just interested in a day. We're very much interested in a person. Coming back to verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. The reason for that is because if the law was still adequate to bring justification to man, there would be no need for Jesus. So the law could only go so far and no further. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law made it possible for us to know what iniquity and transgression was. The first law that we can mention that, that came in the Bible was when uh, we'll say when, when the Lord said to Adam and Eve, you got all these trees here you can eat of. But this one tree, stay away from. So when the Lord said that, he was not saying, look, let me just give you some advice. And, you know, I, I don't know, you might be hungry on this day or something like that. And there are a lot of trees out here. But if you eat of that, I'm not going to say anything to you. But I'll, sh- I'll show you some grace. He said, no, this one tree you're to avoid. So that's the law. That's the legal precept. That's the principle. They broke it. But with that law came this idea. OK, what is sin? Because they'd never sinned. What, what is sin? And since they had never experienced it, they didn't know what it was. They had no genuine understanding of it. It's just like when you're. Little kid is small and that little toddler is wandering around over there by that hot stove. And you say, now, honey, stay away from that stove because that stove is hot. See, now you, you've just given the law. That stove is hot. Now, in, in that little child's mind, they hear you say, avoid that. They know that is to be avoided. They don't know what hot is. Until little Bradley wanders over there. And then he reaches out and he touches the hot stove. And then there's a whole lot of yelling and screaming. And somebody needs to gather him up in his arms and pamper him so that he'll stop crying. And then he realizes, okay, that's not, that's, that's not a good thing. Now, that's not to say he's not going to go back and do it again. That's just to say now he has a, an experiential knowledge of what it is to transgress a commandment and then to touch that. So the scripture here says by the knowledge, by the laws, the knowledge of sin. Paul said, I would have never known that thou shalt not covet had not God said thou shalt not covet. See? So verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ and unto all and upon all them that believe for there is no difference. Well, how is the righteousness of God manifested apart from the law without the law? Abraham believed God and because of his faith in God, it said it was credited to him for righteousness. That is to say that Moses had no Bible. Excuse me. Abraham had no Bible. Abraham did not have any epistles or any gospel. All he had was the oral direction from God and whatever came to him in visions and dreams. And yet because of his obedience, God said, you are righteous now because he believed. 
Now, remember, he lived 400 or so years before there ever was a Moses. And so he, he was righteous because of his faith in God. So now when we come to the cross and on this side of the cross, the Lord basically says, <clears throat> I've taken 1500 years of legal principles and set them aside and brought you back to the place where you are now a seed of Abraham, a child of Abraham, and you're going to be made righteous just like Abraham was made righteous. But your righteousness is going to be accomplished because of your faith in Jesus. See, Abraham believed in God. He didn't know who Jesus was. But he was made righteous because of what he believed. And the Lord said, because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, your faith in the shed blood of what he accomplished on that cross means you now are righteous. I thank God it's that simple. Every man in here should be happy that we don't live under the law. Because if we did, we'd have to make an appearance at the temple in Jerusalem three times a year. Now, how, how difficult would that travel be? I mean, sure, we could fly. But no sooner than you get you save up your money to get to Israel and get back every little bit of savings you got. You're going back over there again four months later. Think of that. Think of the, the number of animals now that would have to be sacrificed for the sins of individuals, for people. Yeah. God knew exactly what he was doing when he brought his son into this world so that we could find righteousness by faith. So verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that little word, all a double L three letters includes everybody on this planet. I don't even know how many people are on the planet now. What's the population number now they're, they're, they're suggesting? Is there at least eight million billion or something? Okay, at least eight billion people are sinners or come under this, this whole, uh, this whole category here born in this world and come short of the glory of God. But here, here would be the question of all the people that are on this planet. I wonder how many of them honestly believe they are sinners and have come short of the glory of God. Cause you talk to a lot of people, they'll say, number one, there is no God. So there's no God. There's no sin. And if there's no sin, you don't fall short of it. And if you don't fall short of it, you're not in need of a savior. If you don't need a savior, you don't need to be justified. See, so that that's a that's a whole group of people. Then consider the number of people who might be Muslim, who find assurance primarily through what they do. The only genuine assurance a Muslim has of a guarantee to a Muslim heaven is if they die as a martyr. That's what Islam teaches. If you die as a martyr, you go straight to Muslim heaven. When the Iran-Iraq war took place, which was about an eight-year war or so, the Iranians were losing a lot of people. So you know what Khomeini did? Khomeini told the population, give me your children. So from eight to 15, give me all your children and I'm going to issue them a, a green key. And, and that green key is going to give them access to heaven. And all of the ones that die in the battle are going to go to heaven. And you have thousands of them that died in the battle against the Iraqis because they honestly believe that. But don't be so surprised that the Muslims did that back in the 80s. I mean, the, the Catholics were doing that back in medieval times with the Crusades. 
And, and the popes were telling people, look, Jerusalem has been taken. And, and, and that, that city, it needs to be in the hands of the Christians. And so people all around Europe and Asia and different places gathered themselves together. And they honored one of the, the, the verdicts of the pope, which basically said, if you go and you die in the midst of this war, your sins will be absolved. You're going to heaven. See, justified by that particular act. But here's what verse 24 says in Romans three. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is good news. Freely. See, freely. What does it cost us? Essentially nothing. But at least let me add this. He still wants us to present ourselves as living sacrifices. We can't earn the salvation, but we are told to do one thing and that is believe. We are told to believe. So being justified freely. Once I believe, then I'm made right with God. You're made right with God. We're righteous with God. Even if you don't feel righteous. So now you can see that this whole transaction is not based upon emotion. When you committed your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, you may not have felt anything. But it, it's not about a feeling. If it's about a feeling, then you know as well as I do, there's some days you wake up and you don't feel saved. Now, we don't have to do this by a show of hands, but I'll just just ask a question. Anybody in here ever went to sleep and had a carnal dream? See, you wake up, you don't feel Christian. Yeah, I mean, goodness, I've gone to sleep. I, I, I've had dreams where I woke up and I hear I was in six, six period class again, getting ready for a test. And I'm nervous and, and sweating and everything. I wake up. I don't feel like a preacher. I feel like a kid again. Yeah. But then I, I've gone to sleep and I've had dreams that I was out on a remote island and, and there were there were ladies that were feeding me grapes. I was just enjoying life. That's as carnal as they come. I wake up. I, I feel like a preacher at all. I feel like a pastor. But I'm still saved. God still loves me. And whatever kind of dream you might have had, you might have had a dream that you actually hurt somebody that angered you. You got even with somebody. Then you woke up and, and you woke up. I mean, you're, the first feeling you had was like, yes, I finally got him back. And then you realize, OK, that, that's that's probably not the best Christian feeling to have. But do you understand that that your salvation is not based upon how you emotionally feel? The transaction is divine. The transaction is spiritual and your redemption was accomplished by Christ. And it says in verse 24, by his grace, grace. What does that mean? Well, look at verse 25. Whom God hath set forth or foreordained to be a propitiation through faith in his blood before there ever was or ever were the parents of Daryl Sutton. God's grace was still available to me when I got here to planet Earth. Yeah. Before there ever was an Adam and Eve and their transgression in the garden, God the Son, within the triune Godhead, had already determined that he would come and offer himself in this world on the cross 
So before there was the condition, we had the cure. See, the only thing we had to do was wait for the fullness of times to work itself out. And we lived as part of this whole drama without even understanding how it was going to work out in the end. And even now, we don't even know how everything in the end is going to unfold. We have some ideas. The scripture gives us some clarity. But ultimately, I hath not seen, ear hath not heard. We don't even know the beautiful things God has prepared for us. Okay, so grace then does not have anything to do with us earning it. It has everything to do with God's free love toward each one of us. And grace, as you have heard people say on so many occasions, is an unmerited favor. That means that it is not something that comes to you through what you do. Now, when we were in the military, you could you could get what they call a meritorious promotion. That means if you did your job the right way, you could be put up for a meritorious promotion. And of course, the only way only way you get put up for that, you got to do a certain amount of things. If you don't do a certain amount of things, you're not going to even be be considered for for the promotion. But but when it comes to God, all of us who were sinners placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we trusted in him, God took all of our sins, lifted our sins, removed all of our sins. We were forgiven of all of our sins. And now it is though we are as innocent as a newborn babe. And it doesn't matter if somebody killed 42 people or somebody over here was just self-righteous in their own self. It, it just means that now we're all the same promoted by the grace of God. And that's the beauty of it. So I don't have any greater standing than you. You don't have any lesser standing than me. We all have, you know, you know, all, all this this equity at the cross because the, the ground at the foot of the cross doesn't tilt in any particular direction. Rich people don't have access to grace that you don't have. Property owners don't have access to grace that people who don't have property uh, don't have. But the scripture says that that Jesus became our propitiation. So if we if we say someone is going to propitiate and make it a verb, then what we're essentially saying is there is wrath that needs to be averted. There's wrath that needs to be set aside. And someone is not happy. Someone is displeased. And and if, if I'm going to do what I can to make you happy, then I'm going to go out of my way to try to get out of this anger that you have. How can I appease you? How can I cause your anger to cease? Now, in the natural it works like this in a marriage. If a husband knows that his wife is unhappy with him, you know, a lot of men, rather than just going to the wife and uh, apologizing, they'll just start doing all kind of good deeds to make her happy and make her smile. Yeah. So, they'll, you know, honey, can I wash the dishes for you? Oh, okay. can I do this for you? Would you like me to rub your feet? Can I get you your favorite ice cream? All of this stuff that people go through to try to get the other party not to be unhappy with them. And it could all end if you just simply say I was wrong. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, just the, the anger would disappear just like that. It's the same thing with with, with kids. If, if siblings are at odds with one another, there are a lot of things they try to do to get back in the good graces with one another. But, you know, you can fix it all with a simple I'm sorry. I repent. 
So this is what happened with with Jesus. There was hostility between us and God. And and the hostility primarily came from our side. Because if 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 you were an unbeliever in God, you were basically saying, I, I'm, I'm fighting you. I'm resisting your will. I'm attacking you. I'm against everything that that, that you're for. And, and God is on the other side. He's just sitting back looking at you. He loves you. But he sees the enmity. There's a chasm there between us and him. There's this big gulf that's there. And he's already bridged it through his son. So he's waiting on us to take advantage of Jesus' death on the cross. And so while we're over here and we're doing all of these other things, he's just sitting back waiting, saying, look, I'm not happy with what you're doing, but there is a way to deal with this unhappiness. You can believe in my son. That's that's what we can do. We can believe, believe in my son. And Jesus became the propitiation, meaning that everybody in Christ has now averted that wrath that so justly should have come to every one of us. Because Ephesians chapter two says we all were children of disobedience, children of wrath. Do you realize that that everything in Christ is going to be saved and go to heaven and everything and everyone outside of Christ is going to go to hell. Now that, that's a that's a very very troubling thought if you consider that, because the whole idea that that God is such a God of love that God is never uh, unhappy. If He's never unhappy, then there wouldn't be any reason for propitiation at all through the death of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah fifty three makes it very plain that with Jesus' death, it pleased the Father to bruise His Son. He put the stripes on the Son so that He wouldn't have to put them on us substitutionally, Jesus died for us so that we could identify with him in his sufferings, but not ourselves have to bear the stripes of our own sins. We're not called to bear our own sins. You can't do it. I can't do it. So Jesus did it for us. Verse 25 again here. Through faith in his blood. So we have to believe that when Jesus blood, this Romans 325, we have to believe that with his shed blood and faith in that blood, we then are overcomers of all of these things. And we are delivered from the wrath to come. That's Romans five and nine. That's first Thessalonians five and nine. We that are believers are delivered from the wrath to come. That means there is wrath coming. Just like we believe one day the church is going to be called away. And, and as First Thessalonians 4 says, the, the ones that are alive are going to be called up to be with him. We believe that is an actual thing that's going to happen because Paul said it's going to happen. But just like the catching away is on the calendar, so is the wrath that's coming on the calendar. It's there. Okay, so now you can see we're freely justified then by, by grace. Well, let's... Let's go to Romans five now and look at verse number one. Now, if I was designing a form of redemption, I don't know if I would have made it this easy for everybody to get in because there are a whole lot of people I'd probably want to keep on the outside. Yeah. I mean, if you think of Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein, Hitler, Mussolini, some of these people who were very, very wicked in the last hundred years or so and some of the people that are alive today that are pretty terrible and do some bad things i'm just not sure i would have designed a salvation that made it so easy for them to get in however i'm not god and neither are you and that's the beauty of this thing whosoever call upon the name of the lord shall be what say 
There's breath in their lungs and they call on God. They can be saved. And God has never asked for our endorsement of his plan of salvation. He's never asked for our approval for his plan of salvation. He has commanded that we promote it. He has commanded that we promote it freely. We have received freely. We give. So Romans five, verse one, therefore, then being justified by faith, what do we have now? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't have that before. Now, you you may say, well, hold on, hold on, Pastor. When I was in sin, I was a happy sinner. And, and I had a whole lot of peace. I didn't think that there was anything wrong. Well, if, if you had that much peace, why in the world did you accept Jesus anyhow? There had to be something going on in your life that brought you to a point where you realize I needed Christ. And the moment the gospel came to you and conviction came, you were disturbed. And in that disturbance, you realize I needed Christ. So it's in that disturbance you didn't have peace. But now that you are Christian, The scripture says we have it as a possession now. We sleep good at night because of it. There used to be a a, a really popular Baptist preacher out on the West Coast named E.V. Hill. I used to love to hear, hear him preach. He'd often be on television years ago, but he was telling a story one time about how dangerous his life was and all of these attacks on his life and, and the and, and Black Panthers and other people were trying to kill him. And he's talking about how they had threatened to put a bomb in his car and his wife. He got up one morning and couldn't find his wife. He's walking all through the house, calling for her, wondering if something had happened. Then later she came and pulled up in the driveway with a robe on in the car. And so she got up, came in the house. He said, well, honey, I've been looking for you. Where were you? He said, well, you know, I knew there were threats on you and people were talking about bombing your car. I just wanted to take your car out and just make sure it was safe. Isn't that a good wife? That's that's a lovely wife, isn't it? Wow. How about that? Yeah. Okay. So he's telling this story about preaching on on one occasion. And and after he was done preaching, there was a, a black panther that was there in the meeting and had on his little outfit and little derby and all of that and came up to him afterwards and was talking to him in a lot of slang in a very cool way and just said, you know, I listen to what you said, preacher. You're talking about all this Jesus stuff, but, you know, this world is in a mess. There's trouble out here. We got problems between the races and all of this. What what exactly would I get if I if I became a Christian? And so E.B. Hill, he then explained to this Black Panther what it is that you receive when you have Christ. And of course, then he developed it into a whole sermon called what you have when you have Jesus. And he explained to that Black Panther, the number one thing you're going to have if you have the king, you're going to have eternal life. Because this life that we live in now is just so transitory, just here for a moment, like a vapor passes away and then you're gone. But he said, you're also going to have something that you don't possess right now. As I'm looking at your face, you don't have any peace. You don't have any peace. You ever notice that you listen to these people who are neo-Nazis or black nationalists or or a nation of Islam advocates and spokesperson. They're all angry. They have no peace. But Romans five and one says being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Yeah. And it's good to have that, to have peace with God and to know you're right with God. And if I laid down on the bed and closed my eyes 
in this life, in the other life, I'm going to open them and be in the presence of the king. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Peace with God. I think that's a wonderful thing. So that gives us the idea that Jesus' death on the cross and the New Testament, the new covenant, the new agreement basically is a peace treaty. And I don't have to be angry with God. And God's not angry with me now. We've got something in common. And that's his son, Jesus. And so I'm happy about that. I think that's a wonderful thing. I think that's a powerful thing to know that you've got a relationship with the king. I'll say it again. I'm not perfect, but I'm saved. See? And I'm perfectly saved. I'm redeemed. I've been, I've had God deal with me. So let's look at, at verse number eight then of Romans five. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that beautiful? Now, it's interesting in verse six and seven, it gives us this contrast. When we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. When were we without strength? Of course, we were without strength even under the law. But certainly, apart from Christ and outside the kingdom of God, we didn't have any strength on our own because we couldn't handle our own sins, our own addictions, our own problems. But verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. You know what he's saying? He's saying you can find one of the best citizens in this community. And there are people who are willing to sacrifice and help that person if they're struggling. Remember that old Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life? That man did everything he could to try to get out of town. But every time he wanted to get out of that town, he had to take what he had saved up and give it to somebody else who needed some help. And then finally, when he found himself in some pretty bad circumstances, the whole town came together for him. And that's what the story was basically letting people know this is what Christmas season is all about. What you have, you give to somebody else. You're willing to sacrifice for somebody else. You're willing to help somebody else. But you know as well as I do, if you have somebody in the community that is a drug user, an abuser, a thief, vulgar, been fired from every job in town, has made one mistake after another on purpose, and has broken relationships, burned bridges with family, and everything else. If that person is in need, there are a whole lot of people say, well, look, he, he, he created his own circumstances. Why in the world should we get involved with, with taking our heart on money and give it to him and all he's going to do is just sit around and do this or that with it and go use drugs or do this or that or whatever. And that's exactly what people will say. And if they won't say it publicly, they'll say it privately and certainly be thinking it inwardly. Yeah. But you know what Jesus did? Jesus came from heaven to earth. And for the worst wretch on this planet that nobody else would have died for, Jesus came and climbed up on that cross for that person, too. That's what this verse is saying. For a good person, some of us would be willing to say, look, I'll lay my life down for her. I don't want her to have to die. But he's saying for a scoundrel, it's hard to find anybody to sacrifice themselves. But Jesus would come and do that. And so in verse 9, it says, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. See, wrath to come, delivered, saved 
For if when we were enemies, that's what we were, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, let me, before I tell you what verse 10 does mean, let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that the whole world is saved and they don't know it. It doesn't mean that at all. I want you to understand Faith is a prerequisite in all of this with what we're talking about, because even though Jesus death is sufficient for every person on this planet, it's only efficient or effective for the ones that put their faith in Jesus. See, Yeah, we won't have any universalism where there's going to be people who's going to wake up one day in heaven and say, oh, my goodness, how in the world did I get here? I didn't even believe there was a God. You mean to tell me I've got to spend all of eternity up here? No. Verse nine, we're justified by his blood. Jesus shed his blood on the cross. So we are saved, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of the Christ, the son of God. We are delivered. And one drop of that blood. Change everything. So you had the the old scapegoat under the old covenant where the priest lay his hands on the head of that goat and start confessing the sins of the nation. See, so he, he probably had one formula or a sentence that he had to say. And in type, the, 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 the sins of Israel were placed on that scapegoat. And then one was set free. Didn't have another one that was sacrificed. So the one that was set free, if it didn't die of old age or didn't get trapped. It ended up taken down by predators. But when he when he scampered off out into the wilderness, he took the sins of Israel far away from the nation. And when Jesus Christ climbed up on the cross, remember, they took him outside of Jerusalem, outside the gates. And there he became our scapegoat and bore all of our sins. And we don't have to worry about sending the goat out and wondering if the goat's going to come wandering back through another gate. Okay, that's not going to happen. Somebody here, little goat, 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 and bring us some food. Here, be live out here. This cute little goat. We don't want anything to happen to this goat. Come on over here. People talking about you bearing somebody's sins. He's too cute. No, when Jesus bore our sins, our sins were lifted. They were removed. And this is why we're justified freely by his blood. Yeah. So I'm not worried about wrath to come. I'm not worried about any hot displeasure or anger that God has or anything like that that's reserved, as the scripture says, until the day of judgment. I know that to every man there is one judgment. There's a death. Yeah. Every man's appointed to die one time. And and I know when I draw my last breath, I'm going to be with the king because I have found reconciliation with the father through his son. And we are not enemies now. We're more than friends. He's the father. I'm the son. You're a child of God. And that means we belong to him. In ancient times, if you went through the formal process of adoption under the Roman system, you couldn't undo it. That adopted child became through legality, every bit as much a child as the blood kin. Okay? So then the scripture says that when we became Christian, born of the Spirit, the Spirit of God sent forth by the Father into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Abba just means Father. That's all. 
Just a synonym. Abba, Father, Father, Father. So there's a relationship. That means that I am and you are adopted by our heavenly father through the spirit of God. And we are genuine children of God. Paul says it this way. We're joint heirs. One can't reign without the other. What belongs to him belongs to me. What belongs to him belongs to you. And if you know that, then you're in a good place. Yeah. These basic ideas about being justified will we'll dispense with any idea that he died before he was baptized, so he's not going to heaven. He, he was scheduled to be baptized on Tuesday, but he was in a car crash on Monday, and I'm worried about his salvation. I'm not worried at all if he knew Christ. That thief on the cross heard Jesus say, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And I'm glad my salvation isn't dependent upon water. Yeah, it's dependent upon blood. It's dependent upon faith. It's dependent upon free grace. And knowing that, I sleep good at night. And no matter who I'm talking to, when we talk about salvation, I always come back to that one basic principle. I'm justified by what he did. See, my salvation is secure. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such an ingenious plan of salvation. And God, it has never been undone. And there's not a person on this planet that has ever produced anything that can equal it. Father, forgiveness is a powerful thing. And I pray that even through uh, what we said tonight, Lord, that we would be reminded again that what is under the blood is under the blood and gone. And unless we bring it up in order to testify or to share some particular truth, Nobody would ever even know. So, Father, continue to lead and guide us every day. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, amen, amen, amen.